0: Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly.
1: When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible x X5 gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed.
2: your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson.
0: Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of July 15th, 2019. On this episode, we will recap the awful series in Oakland for the Chicago White Sox, which they were swept by the Red Hot A's and outscored 21-5. The offense couldn't come up with the key hits during the series, and what an awful way to lose on Sunday's game as Jose Rendon made a bad throw that seemed to roll on forever, allowing the winning run to score all the way from first base, and now the White Sox are 42-47. and on the season. But there was some good that happened over the weekend, which we'll touch on, plus a preview of the four-game series in Kansas City. We'll quickly play buy, sell or hold as the trade deadline is just a couple of weeks away. Talk about Luis Robert and the White Sox prospects in the minor league report, but we have a special guest as well. Author Paul Goldberger will be joining us to discuss ballparks in America and how things have been shifting over the years. From the ballparks going from an urban setting to the suburbs, and it now appears that it's coming back to urban areas as well. As he'll sit down with Jim to talk about uh, specifically about Comiskey Park and even the new setting as well with Guaranteed Rate Field. But first, the White Sox are making a pending roster move, which should be announced sometime on Monday. And I got first-hand account of it as I raced through O'Hare. And joining me to discuss is Jim Margulis, the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and co-host of the podcast. And Jim, uh, it was a great weekend. I had a little bit of a vacation. But man, my Sunday flight uh, was something else. And uh, that first-hand account was, uh, I think, Zach Collins is being optioned back to Charlotte. Uh, with T. Castillo returning because I saw Zach Collins at O'Hare as I was racing to baggage claim. Uh, And uh, I didn't see any other White Sox players, Jim. I believe everyone else is heading their way to Kansas City, Uh, so we'll see if that ends up being the case. And we discussed about the possibility of Collins not being with the White Sox much longer on Sox Machine Live on Wednesday with the calling up of A.J. Reed. If this is true, and Collins is being sent back to AAA, how would you evaluate the first sighting of Collins in the majors?
3: I would say you can't really evaluate it. It was an, it was born from necessity. I guess they could have called up Sebi Zavala, but I think Zavala is having... Yeah, and that would have been purely like, James McCann, start everything. Because Zavala uh, looked like he wasn't ready, and, and he's been pretty bad at AAA too, especially relative to the performance there. He might be the third best catcher there now. So that, yeah, it's... There's always a, a tug of war between meritocracy and financial concerns, and and they do burn an option in this case unless they call him back pretty quickly. They you know, they might not have to, but um, you know should it should the plans hold and everything stay the way it is, then they'll have burned an option on on Collins and pretty ineffectively, especially since AJ Reed, at least for this season, probably closes off the left-handed DH bench bat options. But uh, yeah, it's just it's unfortunate. I wouldn't grade him too harshly. I'd say he. You know, he needs to work on the high fastball. Uh, I don't know if he sees too many of them in AAA to where he can work on laying it off there. But that's, I think, the biggest issue. They they seem to just go after it and he couldn't lay off. The catching seemed okay. I didn't notice it too much. So I guess I would take that as a positive um, that you're not noticing him. But uh, otherwise, it just uh, happened to me in a rather uneventful, you know, three weeks, month. I'm, I'm, I am disappointed, though. I, I should say I, I wish that you like ran into him literally like rounding a corner. <laughs> And then you could have had an understanding and addressed some differences. Been a total meat cute. You missed that.
0: Yeah, I did miss that. I did miss that. I was just too hyper focused on trying to get home uh, late at night. Um, Here's the question that has been swirling in my head Are we certain that Zach Collins is a core piece or is not a core piece in this rebuild?
3: I would say he's not a core piece, but he's not negligible either. Like, I, Given his skill set and, and the fact that he can maybe be a decent offensive catcher and an offense first catcher, that's not something you throw away or completely disregard. Um, and I, I think there is a possibility that he can stick there for a couple years, be below average. Uh, I think Evan Gaddis has come up as somebody who provides a very unique set of skills and maybe isn't the guy you want behind the plate handling your entire pitching staff, but can step in and Catch a game or two a week, and 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 not a total detriment. So there is that, and I think it's worth time, uh, you know, figuring out just exactly what his limitations are, what exactly he can handle behind the plate before, um, you know, thinking about him as a first base or DH or figuring out how you work him in with Andrew Vaughn and Gavin Sheets and everybody that's piling up there, especially if AJ Reed somehow sticks. Uh, I, I'd work on the catcher thing first. And then, uh, I still think James McCann or, you know, Yasmani Grandal or whoever, uh, you know, whoever the free agent or incumbent option remains is probably the core catcher going forward, but at least for the next couple of years, but I think Collins can be in the mix somehow. And maybe, you know, if leveraged properly, a, maybe a unique weapon. Is that good enough from a 2016 first round pick? Uh, not really um you know relative to the you know the other first round but like carson fulmer and you know when he's in the same you you'd want one of those two to develop to their at least their, not me if not their ceiling to at least a, a useful everyday player or every five day player and since that didn't happen i think collins is more disappointing but i think after like the first four or five picks the uh, the math shows that the returns for draft picks are diminished fairly quickly so i think uh the expectations are maybe a bit too high for a 10th pick uh, relative to their history, but it would be, you know, if they can get an, you know, a solid 25-man roster piece, not somebody who kind of goes in and out and is shuffled based on roster need, but somebody you you want to plan at least some games around, that's not the worst outcome, and, and hopefully they have better outcomes <laughs> from subsequent players. And also Jake Berger is another one that makes... Collins' uh, inability to hit maybe his ceiling, uh, loom a bit larger. But I think for an individual, independent draft pick assessment, it's not bad. It's not exciting, but it's not bad.
0: Well, let's t- quickly touch on the Oakland Athletics series, as I'm sure White Sox fans don't really want to dwell what happened on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Again, the White Sox were swept. They lost game one, five to one. Even though they had 10 hits in the game, they could only score one run. Game two, complete disaster. They lost thirteen to two. Dylan Covey was awful in in his return start. And on game three, uh, Eloy Jimenez hit the go ahead home run, and it looked like the White Sox were going to win a squeaker two to one. Um, but the bullpen with Evan Marshall, he gave up a home run, and Jose Rondon made a terrible throw to second base that rolled on forever in foul territory, allowing Chad Pinder to score all the way from first base to score. But Ronaldo Lopez was good in this series, and on Sunday he threw 93 pitches, 58 fastballs, 13 sliders to eight curveballs, and 14 changes. He induced 19 swinging strikes. His fastball averaged 96.7 miles per hour on Baseball Savant, with the fastest being 98.8 miles per hour. He struck out seven while walking just two, and he gave up just the one run, which was unearned over three hits in six innings. So, a good start for Lopez. And watching on the plane, it appeared that Lopez had better fastball command in this start. And this is something we've been talking about all season long. That's the key for Lopez. If he can't command his fastball, it's going to be a terrible outing. I was a bit surprised that Renteria didn't send him out for the seventh inning. But I like the idea, Jim, of limiting Lopez to just six innings at the moment to focus on just being more consistent in his outings in the second half.
3: No, I like the idea, too, uh, especially as pitchers go on especially a game like that when you have somebody who's having well, not unprecedented success but uh, a turnaround from previous starts you don't want to milk that until he runs out of gas the lineup figures him out for a third or fourth time and uh, all of a sudden all the gains are more moral victories and oh remember we did the first six innings before it all fell apart I think it's good to uh, you know keep him to six good innings 90 pitches and not 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 stress test him until he collapses. And you know there's still a lot of season left and you know being the first uh, start of the second half and having a few extra days off to recharge. It was peak Lopez in terms of his arsenal. You know ideally you would like to see more a more effective slider and and used more frequently and doesn't need to get as much out of his fastball but right now I think the Lopez template calls for a lot of fastballs located up in the zone or maybe even above the zone and he had that uh, you know confidence he's pumping the fastball he had uh as you mentioned the 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 velocity you'd like to see and you know he had some moments where he's able to uh, punch his way out of it with the fastball uh show some emotion on the mound and that's kind of what we saw in September and why I thought that he would be uh he would spend the season solidifying his case and not having to rebuild but uh, it is a thin line he walks. Uh, that's my concern is that with this profile, we've seen him succeed with it. And we've also seen it uh, completely blow up in his face. And it would be nice if he had an, a plan B, if plan A doesn't work. I think maybe that's what I'll be watching for the next two two mo- two and a half months is seeing if you know he doesn't have that elite fastball command and velocity. Does he have another way to get guys out? Any other takeaways from this awful series as the White Sox are now 42
0: and 47 on the season?
3: Well, uh, I guess I'll keep it positive since the numbers speak for itself. And, you know, running Dylan, Dylan Covey out there, just the White Sox refuse to think it's a bad idea the way they're doing it. And they just keep making the same mistake over and over again. You know, I could fixate on that. But I think if you're looking for positive developments, I would say that Eloy Jimenez having better at bats, drawing walks. He's not chasing stuff out of the zone. He's over 20 walks now. And it doesn't sound like a lot, but considering how much he was swinging and how out of, balance that uh, walk to strikeout ratio was uh, seeing these walks you know more frequent not chasing things out of the zone making them throw strikes uh, that's been a pleasant development and uh, he did homer in the last game homer into the pole field lifted the ball to the left side waited back in a changeup, uh, got under it and sent it out to the left that's the other thing you want to see now that he's not swinging at strikes or swinging at pitches out of the zone he has to work on lifting the pitches that he does see in the zone and uh, you know getting more on them and That's, I think, what you want to see over the next series or two is just more pitches being elevated, preferably to the pole field. But if he's being pitched away and takes it that way, that's fine, too. Is this a sign of
0: things to come in the second half for the White Sox?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think we can officially put 500 out of reach. Yeah, I think they might flirt with like three, two below. But I think given the lopsided nature of their pitching staff and even if Lopez is improving, that helps one problem, but they still have at least one, one one-and-a-half pitching spots still to settle. Dylan Cease, I'm trying not to expect too much from. Uh, And I think that's going to make it tough, especially when the bullpen, you know, Evan Marshall seems to have been figured out a little bit. Uh, Kelvin Herrera, I think Rick Renner is trying to give him a confidence boost, but I think that's going to be really hard to come by. Alex Calame, they've already asked too much from him already, and, you know, if they trade him, then that's another thing. So I think the, the bullpen is wobbling right now and could collapse. So I think the... 500 is going to be really tough. They're going to need everything from their defense and bullpen. And as we saw with the, you know, some of the infield play, I think the infield defense and, and defense in the left field is going to be problematic, or at least I would say inconsistent. They're going to have slumps and, and not going to be ironclad. So it, it's going to be tough the rest of the way, but I'm hoping for just a lot more high-scoring games, a lot more excitement. And you know, guys like Jimenez and Moncada, and hopefully when Anderson comes back, he finds what he had. And I think that'll be entertaining enough to at least make the problems a lot easier to address going into the off season. We are going to play
0: buy, sell, or hold next, but a quick word from our sponsor. Are you tired of credit card bills with high interest rates, ready to pay off your credit card balances and start saving money? Well, get a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream with rates as low as 5.95% APR with AutoPay lower than the average credit card interest right now the market is 19 percent apr you can get a loan for five thousand to a hundred thousand dollars with no fees, and there's no application fees, no origination fees, no transaction fees, no prepayment penalties, and the rate is fixed. So you know it'll never go up over the life of the loan, plus you can even get your money in your bank account as soon as the day you apply. This is a great deal for those that have good credit, but right now you have a lot of credit card debt, and you just wanna kinda get that under control, you can get a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. With, again, the rates as low as 5.95% APR with AutoPay. And for our listeners, if you apply now, you get a special interest rate discount. And the only way to get this discount is go to lightstream.com slash socks. That is L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash socks. Subject to credit approval, rate includes a 0.5% Percent auto pay discount, terms and conditions apply, and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit Lightstream.com socks for more information. I went on the Joe Ostrowski show on six seventy to score Thursday night to play buy, sell, or hold with Joe. And this is what our good friend Joe thought the White Sox should do prior to the trade deadline.
2: With Josh Nelson on 670 The Score, my name, Joe Ostrowski. So last night, Josh, came out of the box. I wanted to talk some White Sox about what they're going to do with this upcoming deadline. And I think it's pretty clear-cut what they should do. But I know you disagree. You've been talking about it for weeks on your podcast, the Sox Machine podcast, buy, sell, or hold. What should the White Sox do? I think they should definitely sell. This is going to be a seller's market, your only trade deadline of the year. Mm-hmm. And and if this works out, this will be the last time that you get to accumulate as many prospects as possible at a deadline. They're not close to the division. They're
4: not close to a wild card. I sell. And I totally get your point. I, I, I pick hold. I, at this moment, this week, I say hold. Now we'll see what happens during this 10-game stretch. If – They collapse and fall on their face. Next week, I'll change my answer, Joe, and I'll totally be with you and be like, sell, sell, sell. you got to move Alex Colomay. But right now, I say hold, because you do have an extra year with Alex Colomay, and the White Sox are still going to need someone to help out with high-leverage situations, especially if you think that the White Sox could be a team that could be a dark horse contender in 2020. But the only way I would move Alex Colomay is for a profit. And what I mean by that is... If I was Rick Hahn, I want a top 100 prospect. I don't care if it's just one prospect. I need a quality prospect to replace Alex Colomay to help supplement the prospect depth that a lot of it's been taken back, right, with all these injuries that have taken place for the White Sox. So that's what I would do. I mean, if a team calls and says, hey, we have this top 100 prospect, we'll do a one-for-one swap with you for Alex Colomay, sure, take Alex Colomay, the White Sox get another top 100 prospect to help – Load up the farm system and create um, more, I guess, depth with the next wave coming up. But if if it's going to be the deals like Joaquin Soria to the Milwaukee Brewers, where you're getting this double A reliever that you want to kind of dream on, no thanks, I'll pass. So it's got to be a premium return for Alex Callame. Is that fair? Is that a, a justified return? No, but I know that. I, I think the White Sox should try to profit from well, moving Alex Colomé. May,
2: maybe it is a fair return because you get a year and a half of control. Now, now where I sit on Colomé, I do disagree with you because he's going to be age, he's going to be thirty one next year. And if you're expecting him to repeat an ERA of two, I think that's a big ask. His BABIP, Totally
4: sustainable, Joe. It his is BABIP, totally sustainable. You, you sustainable. You, you, you want to shut me
2: down. You don't want me to get to the real deal. A uh, BABIP of 124, a 467 x XFIP, Josh. This, this is all the signs of a major correction coming.
4: That BABIP is totally sustainable. So, <laughs> so you know it, it. No, you know not. it. You... I know it is, and he's only had three strikeouts in the last couple of weeks, so he's allowing <laughs> a lot of contact. I mean, yes, when you bring up those numbers, logically, you are right, Joe. The White Sox should take this opportunity and move Alex Columet, Uh, because he may not pitch any better this season. Me, I, I kind of want to see how this plays out and see if this continues on. And if it does – Keep them around because, as we know in free agency, relievers can be pretty expensive. I mean, the White Sox gave Kelvin Herrera a three-year, $21 million deal, and that deal's not looking so hot. So uh, right now, I, I'm, I, like I said, I'm in a hold state. But let's see how, what happens in this road trip to Oakland, Kansas City, and Tampa. And if the White Sox are five, seven games, below little 500, then I'm with you, Joe. Sell and move Colony.
0: Again, that clip is from Joe Ostrowski's show on 670 The Score, which you could listen to on nights when the Cubs are not playing. You could also listen to episodes on 670 slash podcasts. I was still in a holding pattern on Thursday night, but Jim, after this weekend and seeing Andrew Kashner and Homer Bailey get traded over the weekend, I'm feeling a change in my previous thinking, and I am transitioning to thinking the White Sox should be sellers prior to the trade deadline where do you stand at the moment
3: i'm still at a pragmatic hold to where i think uh they can't really add unless it's for pitchers who can help two plus years from now and they don't really have a whole lot to sell outside of alex kalamay and I do worry about rick renteria's health if they do get rid of kalamay <laughs> um and, and i did you know worry about a bit about the bullpen construction too i mean uh if they're trying to contend in 2020, where those outs are going to come from. Some guys pop up here and then there are some random successes and, and maybe they get some guys back like Zach Birdie and Ian Hamilton. But, uh, I, you know, given that, uh, Colum is going through some peripheral weirdness right now and, and might not get the price back. They think, uh, I'm thinking they just hold by default. I, again, I'm
0: transitioning to seller. I think if the Royals can trade Homer Bailey, Rick Hahn can move Yvonne Nova. Hmm. I'm interested to see on how aggressive teams are with bullpen help, especially with Alex Colomay, especially what has been transpiring and what we're hearing through the tea leaves that the Dodgers may be interested in adding relief help. The Red Sox have already made one aggressive move in adding Andrew Kashner. Would they be interested in adding more bullpen help? So we'll see. I mean, if, if teams are going to start ramping up being more aggressive and try to obtain bullpen pieces. I think that would give the White Sox an opportunity to flip Alex Colomay. And as far as you're concerned, like going into next year, the only position that seems that Rick Hahn is aggressive in free agency, in signing and investing money in, is bullpen arms.
3: Yeah, but that's Kelvin Herrera. Well, uh, David (laughs) Robertson. Yeah, I mean, just like it's not a great... uh... Um. yeah, Herrera being the most recent example just uh, and, and being the White Sox' biggest free agent acquisition just makes me a little bit gun-shy about that, um, given how poorly he's panned. But, you know, on the other hand, Joaquin Soria was in a Herrera-like position to where uh, he looked like his best days were behind him and injuries had popped up and uh, just weren't feeling great about getting the most from him. And he was able to find a different gear and get hitters out that way. And the White Sox, you know, had a pretty nice... Uh, little experience with him so i'm not completely writing it off just more um yeah i wouldn't can i guess i wouldn't keep column a specifically for that purpose i just wonder about the return and mm. whether the return you know if you get like a blake rutherford uh and you know all the rutherford's been improving but like a back half of the top 100 prospect list a single shot guy um you know whether that adds more than say like column a does to a more comprehensive 2020 bullpen picture okay. when they're trying to compete I am going to disagree. I think mm-hmm. that it
0: would be worthwhile for the White Sox to add more prospect depth at, at the moment, especially when the depth has been really, I'm not going to say gutted, but it's been it's been impacted, obviously, with a lot of injuries. If there's an opportunity that the White Sox can get a back end of the top 100 starting pitching prospect— in exchange for Alex Colome I think that would be worthwhile, especially if a pitching prospect is in double-A in baseball right now. That, that like yeah, help. I can
3: see that. <laughs>
0: and if he's already had Tommy Johnson. <laughs> <once>. <laughs> yeah, good point. Good point. But asking our fans on Twitter, 515 votes, 54% say sell. 41% say hold. Only 5% are still on the buy train. But I think... The contenders are going to be too aggressive in trying to obtain starting pitching this off uh, this trade season, and that may make the White Sox hesitant in trying to add a starting pitcher that's controllable, someone like Marcus Stroman, right? Uh, I think other teams are going to be a little bit more aggressive in their pitches uh, to try to trade uh, obtain Marcus Stroman in the trade market, and would be a price that the White Sox do not currently want to pay at the moment. That's my feeling. We'll see
3: what actually happens. And one of those buy votes was somebody feeling bad for the buy column. <laughs> well, uh,
0: great. <laughs> so the so, sample is poisoned. Yeah, the sample was poisoned, uh, but still overwhelmingly uh, 54% sell. So week one, it was hold. Week two, it was sell. Weeks three and four, it was hold. And now the fans are back to sell mode. We'll see where they are next Monday as we continue to play buy, sell, or hold, entering the one week away from the trade dead, trade deadline. And I expect the activity around Major League Baseball to really pick up. And hopefully we do have some news to discuss as it impacts the Chicago White Sox, not just for 2019, but also looking ahead to 2020 if some of those cost-controllable starters are moved within the league or changing leagues. But next, let's preview the series in Kansas City, as depending on how it goes, again, it could change people's minds again when we play buy, sell, or hold next Monday. But first, a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. As baseball season is already into the second half, there's no better place to get your tickets on SeatGeek as SeatGeek pulls millions of tickets into one place, so you can easily find the seats you want for a price you're willing to pay, and there's nothing quite like being there in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I use SeatGeek all the time to buy White Sox tickets. When I was in Portland, I got a chance to check out a Portland Timbers game, and I bought eight tickets on SeatGeek. It was a real easy way to get into the Portland Timbers Stadium, and it was uh, pretty fun, actually, to be part of that atmosphere. And if you're looking for tickets later in this second half for White Sox games, there's no better resource than SeatGeek. But if you're going to be traveling on the road to follow the Chicago White Sox, SeatGeek had a stadium survey as they asked baseball fans from all 30 teams across the country which stadiums have the best experience, from the food to the traffic. They ranked it all. And you can check them out at SeatGeek.com slash stadium guides to see what fans have to say about visiting stadiums. So again, if you're going to be following the White Sox sometime for a road trip, Go to SeatGeek.com slash stadiumguides to get all the details about opponent stadiums. But whether you... Uh, are seeing teams that are ranked high on the list or low on the list as far as the stadium guides. Make sure to get out to a game this season with SeatGeek and to help you even more save on tickets, our listeners get $10 off their first SeatGeek purchase. All you have to do is just download the SeatGeek app onto your smartphone and use promo code Machine. That's promo code Machine to save $10 off your first purchase on SeatGeek. SeatGeek, life's an event we have the tickets and the Kansas city Royals are already 30 games below 500. They are 32 and 62 on the season. However, their expected win loss record is 39 and 55. They're underachieving by seven games, which is uh kind of impressive. Uh, they're 27 games back of the Minnesota twins in the American league central just winning percentage points ahead of the Detroit Tigers for last place in the AL Central. In their last 10 games, they are 3-7. Your pitching problems for this midweek series, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, are all 7-10 p.m. Central time starts. It is Lucas Giolito on Monday against Jacob Junis. On Tuesday, Dylan Cease against Glenn Sparkman. Wednesday, Avon Nova against Danny Duffy, and Thursday it is an afternoon affair with a game starting at 12:15 p.m. Central Time. It is still in Covey against Brad Keller. Dylan Cease makes his second career start. Jim, what are you hoping to see from him against the Royals?
3: Still, you know, keeping my expectations a little bit lower five innings um, and just a good five innings where he can maybe be in position for the win. If the offense gives him support, he did that last time out. And uh, I guess going from the last start to this start, maybe a better first inning. That would be nice. Like uh, maybe not flirting with immediate disaster the way he did his first time out uh, would be a uh, nice to see. And uh, there was a, a article in the athletic that James Feagan wrote talking about how C Scott uh, picked me up from uh, Giolito and uh and you know a little bit from Don Cooper in the dugout just you know talking about uh, how to regain his focus and mechanics and everything like that and maybe uh, having that adrenaline boost and that fight or flight mechanism kick in the first start might give him some experience that uh, he'll have to better weather that kind of uh, you know mechanical inconsistency or just the lack of feel he has in the early going should that happen again anything else that you're keeping an eye on in this series well you know the the royals have been pretty bad <laughs> And uh, it's uh, in, in bad in a way that I think is instructive for the White Sox. Like I saw when the White Sox picked up AJ Reed, that you know even though Reed doesn't really fit into the long term picture, and there's a little bit of a, a log jam with uh, you know, Andrew Vaughn and Gavin Sheets and Zach Collins for first base, DH, left handed at bats. Um, you know they're at least aggressive in exploring what used to be a top, you know in some cases a top you know 15 prospect. And the Royals did not do that. The Royals haven't done that. Like, they, they kept Terrence Gore instead of Brian Goodwin. And Goodwin's having, you know, had a nice season for the Angels. And uh, they just let Gore go. Um, they have Lucas Dude on the roster. He's hitting like 150 something. And they could have picked up A.J. Reed and didn't. So I would like to see Reed have a couple nice at bats and make like the Ranny uh, Gisarlies of the <laughs> Royals blogging world give them a bit of a headache, just uh, even if Reed, uh, you know, Only has moments, I guess, lesser teams like that. But also the Royals have like a really big home run imbalance between allowing them and hitting them. So I would like to see the White Sox rub that in their faces a little bit after finding extra base hits really hard to come by in Oakland. The one thing I'm catching or keeping an eye on for
0: this series is can Dylan Covey bounce back? Because if Dylan Covey has another disastrous start... Not exactly sure what the White Sox are going to do moving forward in that fifth starting spot. Maybe they take your idea finally, Jim, on just using an opener and try to use three or four pitchers pitchers out of the bullpen to get through games on those days.
3: It'll probably be Hector Santiago. Next? Yeah, just yeah, I'm not expecting the opener to happen, but I am this point I'm I've kind of given up on it, but I think uh you know should Covey have another like disastrous two innings and Ross Detweiler come in and have a you know, really rough time himself and look like uh, Despanier and, and Santana and the other guys they've tried this year, then seems like they'll just keep shoveling uh, really wet coal into that furnace. <laughs> All right. Can't
0: wait to discuss that in the upcoming weeks. I agree. I think that that probably be happening. We'll see how soon it does happen, but hopefully Dylan Covey can bounce back. I feel this is a series that the White Sox could win Three out of four, maybe sweep the Royals because, again, Kansas City hasn't been all that great. uh, But it's hard to be that confident on what happened in Oakland. Hopefully the White Sox wake up because they are still got seven games left of this road trip after the four games of Kansas City does not get any easier as they fly to the East Coast to St. Petersburg, Florida to face the Tampa Bay Rays before they come home. We'll recap the series Thursday night on Sox Machine Live, but coming up next, we are joined by author Paul Goldberger, who wrote the book, Ballpark, Baseball in the American City, next on the Sox Machine podcast.
3: So let me introduce Paul Goldberger. He's a contributing editor for Vanity Fair and previously an architecture critic for The New Yorker and The New York Times, and he's most recently the author of Ballpark, Baseball in the American City. I reviewed it for Sox Machine, and it's a fantastic book no matter how you approach it. You can read it front to back like a proper piece of narrative history, or you can flip through it and look at the photos and captions like a coffee table book, and it'll be appreciated either way. That's Paul Goldberger, and that's why he's here to talk to us today. Paul, thanks for joining us on the Sox Machine podcast. Um, I really enjoyed Ballpark, and I was curious, uh, what's the origin story for this book? How did it come about?
1: Well, you know, Jim, I've always loved Ballpark. Um and, of course, architecture is my life. I've been writing about it my whole life. Um, I love baseball. And at some point, I decided it, would, it was high time I put the two of these things together, these two lines in my life, and and made them intersect. Um, I think the more tangible origin goes back to ten years ago, when I was at the New Yorker magazine and the new City Field and Yankee Stadium both opened in 2009 and the editor asked me to write a piece about them i did and as i was researching it i realized that the history of baseball particularly baseball in the city not just new york city but cities in general Mm. was so much richer and more complex than anybody had really documented and that the ballpark really was a key form of american public space and nobody had kind of looked at it that way and so I decided it was time to uh, start thinking about it that way, and uh, the book emerged out of that.
3: Hmm. And what's your baseball fan background?
1: Well, um, not an unusual one particularly. Uh, I, uh, I was, uh, but it just had little, lots of little bits and pieces. I suppose the beginning of it was when I was just a toddler, and my mother was a passionate Brooklyn Dodgers fan hmm. in the 1950s. Um, she was one of those people who was so upset when the Dodgers left Brooklyn and went to Los Angeles. She not only did not transfer her allegiance to L to the LA Dodgers. She did not switch to any other team. Mm. She simply gave up on baseball. She was so <laughs> frustrated. And so, um, I grew up as a kind of Yankees fan by default because I was in the New York area, but it, uh, once the Dodgers and the Giants were both gone, they were, the Yankees were the only game in town, literally. And, uh, so I was, I was kind of a Yankees fan, but for, for whatever reason, without the passion that a lot of people felt for the Yankees, I think I was kind of, there must have been some uh, little bit of National League DNA mm. passed down from my mother or something like that, because when the Mets came, I very quickly became a Mets fan. So um, I guess I grew up more as a Mets fan. Uh, I certainly remember I was in college uh had just gotten to college when the Mets won the World Series in 69 and I remember being you know in more excited about that than anything in my younger childhood had been and then actually uh through high school I I covered baseball for my uh, not only my high school paper but for the local weekly newspaper in the town I was I grew up in hmm. and so it was always kind of in and out of my life um uh, never as central to it as it has become in this time of writing this book. But it's uh, always been a, a kind of consistent theme in my life, I could say.
3: Yeah, I was curious how much your professional life and your baseball fandom intersected before, like, the Yankee Stadium and City Field. Uh, you not know, like,
1: not hugely, okay. a little bit, a little bit. And, in fact, when I was at the New York Times, um, which was the first big chunk of my career, I um, I would always and and covering architecture and, and urban planning and things like that, um, when there was a new ballpark, I would always argue that, that this was an important thing that we needed to cover and the editors would sometimes be a little bit puzzled and sometimes they the arts editor where most architecture was would send me over to the sports editor. Uh the sports editor of course would be very excited because it would give him something a little different from the norm. So I remember writing pieces in the sports section on um Progressive Field, which was then called Jacobs Field in mm-hmm. Cleveland and the ballpark in Arlington, which is now Globe Life and uh and of course Camden Yards, um as well as Wrigley. Um, and uh so, you know, I would look for chances to do pieces about baseball parks as often as I can and over the years I you know, I didn't do a lot, but certainly did a chunk of them. And uh then um uh, then came that New Yorker piece And that was when I realized you know, There's something much bigger in all of this That it would be fun to Dig into and devote some time to And so I did
3: So you came into this project then like Mostly fresh with uh, your assessments Of ballparks and the history You hadn't really applied much of a professional eye to it I guess um,
1: Yeah, I think that, that that's right uh, But it was also about making this connection Between sort of American urban history And baseball And you know, I realized that uh, I think the the key realization behind the book was this thought that you know early on, baseball parks were deeply and closely connected into cities. They were parts of neighborhoods. They were integrated into what we call the urban fabric. And then, uh, in the mid twentieth century, they became big and suburban, mostly surrounded by acres of uh, parked cars. And then, beginning with Camden Yards, was this huge and important transition back into the city. And that those three kind of phases, you could say, sort of pretty much mirror or parallel the way our whole culture looks at our treated at cities. So in fact, the book is really about how we can we can look at American cities through baseball and make a history of of American cities through baseball. But, of course, the book also talks a lot about the game itself. It's, not, uh, it's, it's still a baseball book, not just an architecture
3: book. Yeah. Oh, I'll get to uh, Camden Yards and, and, and <laughs> the White Sox uh, involvement in that in a bit. But mm-hmm. uh, do you have a number on how many ballparks you covered in the book or like a rough estimate?
1: Uh, you know, actually, I never did count them up because, of course, they vary from ballparks that are just mentioned or just get a couple of sentences to ballparks that get a whole chapter. Uh, depending on how important I feel they are. Uh, I mean, the, the one thing I wanted the book to be is a, a true story, a narrative, with a beginning, a middle, and an end, as opposed to a listing or an encyclopedia or a guidebook or anything like that. You know, there, there actually is a pretty decent encyclopedia of North American ballparks mm-hmm. uh, that was a good reference book. Um, there are several guides to various ballparks. I didn't want to duplicate that. I really wanted to write... The story of how all these things connect and how baseball becomes a mirror into American cities, and in turn, American cities are kind of a mirror into baseball, and how baseball connects to so much else in our history and our culture and so many other ideas and issues. So um, I devoted myself primarily to the evolution of Major League ballparks, which means there isn't much about Minor League parks, occasionally, but not too much. Or Negro League parks, or uh, college and university ballparks, uh, ballparks out of the U.S., all of which are really interesting, but they're just kind of another story. And I thought if I got into all of that, there was the risk that the book would really be just kind of an encyclopedia, a listing, and you know, a paragraph about this, a paragraph about that, and you wouldn't be able to really tell a story. And sometimes to tell a story well. You have to omit at least some parts of it so that there's a kind of a coherent plot to it. And that's kind of what I was doing.
3: Yeah, that's what I enjoyed about the book is that, uh, you know, you, uh, the reader, I, I think, puts trust in you. And that uh, what you're going to say when you find something interesting. You're going to relay what's interesting about that to the reader. So you might, you know, it might be a bit uneven in terms of stadium representation, but it's for a purpose. Precisely.
1: That's exactly, that's exactly the point. And so, you know, I was trying to say, you know, we know, for example, the Camden Yards is really important. We know why, um, you know, some of the, the early ballparks from uh, the, the golden age, early in the 20th century, were important. Um, and so, you know, they get a lot of attention. Uh, some others get less attention because they're less important. Or, But some that I think are not really very good get a lot of attention because they were they were important in other ways uh, like the Astrodome for example first time baseball was played under a dome and mm-hmm. it um, it it had a lot of i think negative influence i think it's actually a kind of a wonderful crazy place but it was an awful place for baseball yeah it's a, it's a great wild insane wonderful piece of architecture but it's it's anti baseball in a certain way for me and so you know discussing all that meant you know the Astrodome actually gets a lot of attention So the amount of attention something gets in the book is not necessarily proportional to how good it is, but more kind of to how much it matters to the larger questions the book's about.
3: What was the the biggest rabbit hole you fell into, or like the the thread that you kept pulling at because you were surprised by how crazy or important or insignificant or insane it was?
1: Well, let's see. Um, Not insane, but just kind of surprising and Interesting. Was how much stuff there was at the beginning. You know, when I started on the book, I thought, you know, the really interesting stuff starts with Fenway and Tiger Stadium, and maybe a little before with Shibe Park and and Comiskey Park, which is 1910, and so forth. But you know, there's not much before that, so you know, I'll write half a paragraph. I mean, I read half a chapter or something, a few paragraphs about all that stuff, and then get into the good stuff. Well. Turned out there was an amazing amount of good stuff that happened before that. Really, really interesting. Um, most of it built of wood. Most of it gone. Virtually all of it gone. A lot of it burned down. Um, and uh, you know, and a lot of interesting characters and people and the whole struggle over the soul of baseball, in a sense, early on. You know, how much is this going to be about entertainment and the masses versus making it a more elite. Victorian gentleman's sport. Um, the National League, you know, was originally founded to um, to sort of be tough and to say, you know, this is about uh, purity and this is about the purity of the game and there's going to be no baseball on Sundays and there's no alcohol served in ballparks and so forth. Um, whereas at the same time, you had a competing league, the American Association that did not, the, did not become the American League. It was something else that was known informally as the Beer and Whiskey League mm. that celebrated all that stuff, that marketed itself directly to working people, many of whom had six-day-a-week factory jobs. The only time they could go to a ball game would be on a Sunday. And, of course, what they wanted more than anything was to drink beer. The team in uh, St. Louis, the St. Louis Browns, was owned by a tavern owner named Gus Vonderai, who bought it because he thought it would be a good way to sell more beer and put a beer garden in the outfield. So, you know, you had these two, so you had that. You also had sort of things like South End Grounds in Boston that was this ornate Victorian wooden structure that was just amazing with these witch's cap turrets on it and everything else. Probably the most ornate ballpark of the 1880s. It burned down after something like seven years, uh, and most of those things burned down. Uh, which is why it was such a big deal when they finally were able to start building fireproof uh, ballparks out of steel and concrete in the 20th century. But um, So all of that stuff was so interesting that what I thought would be half a chapter turned out to be three chapters hmm. in the book. So that was, I guess, a kind of rabbit hole uh, of a sort. Um, the In terms of things that were crazy and insane... Uh, Oh God! So much. So much of the history of baseball is crazy and insane, actually. <laughs> and and I, I, one thing I hadn't known, and this this impacts on on Chicago and the White Sox, of course, is how many ballparks in the mid twentieth century were built speculatively by cities wanting to attract a team without a deal in place. Um, and of course, one of the most best known is. Uh, the, uh, is what's now Tropicana Field mm-hmm. in uh, St. Petersburg, where the uh, city had very high hopes of attracting the White Sox and failed to do so. Also, at one point, almost got the San Francisco Giants to leave San Francisco. Um, and that, in the end, um, until a later expansion uh, led to the creation of the uh, Tampa Bay Rays, uh, it was empty. They, it was a totally speculative venture, and uh, it failed as a speculative venture and only had, was occupied with a permanent tenant when an expansion team came in. But, uh, you know, how much, and, but that was not the only such story. You know, there were others as well. That was a surprise, and that, that definitely falls into the category of, of a certain amount of insanity.
3: Well, you mentioned the White Sox anyway, and that speculative or, or almost move in the late 80s. And uh, that kind of leads me to, I guess, a very painful uh, point for White Sox fans, which is Armour Field and, and that whole project. Yeah. And, and that looms large in the in, in the minds of fans and, and just what could have been. Does that rank as one of the bigger stadium what-ifs that you came across? Yeah, I think, I
1: think it does. And I think um, I give a lot of attention to Armour Field. Uh, even though it never had much of a chance of really happening, but it was a very important, uh, let's say shot across the bow, uh, you know, a really important early attempt to do, um, a baseball only ballpark, in a in a traditional architectural style that would get us away from what I refer to in the book as the concrete donuts, mm-hmm. um, those, you know, big, harsh, difficult, unpleasant mid-century stadiums, most of which were built for football and baseball and tended to serve neither sport very well, actually, because they ignored how different their needs are. Um, and, you know, Armour was a proposal, an entirely independent proposal made to the team and to the Illinois Sports Authority um, for a baseball-only ballpark in a slightly different location from the one chosen, but adjacent, um, that I felt was very impressive and deserved to be taken seriously, even though, of course, you know its, it's time had long since passed. But I wanted the book to uh, include it and give it, you know, a little more historical importance, um, because in fact it it predated Camden Yards and uh, was one of the first indications of what would become, you know, a huge movement in and a, a really a te- tectonic shift in the whole world of baseball architecture, moving away from the concrete donut back toward uh, more traditional baseball-only, uh, integra- urbanistically integrated ballparks. And uh, the, uh, the failed project for Armour Field call it, I guess, the alternative vision for the White Sox, uh, really was a brilliant and remarkable scheme, I thought. And uh, while it didn't happen, it helped pave the way for a lot of what did happen in other cities.
3: So does New Comiskey Park have any redeeming values to you?
1: Uh, Not a lot, no. I think New Comiskey (laughs) Park is sadly one of the great failures. It's the last of the concrete donuts. It was built at a point when we kind of knew better, which is why it's harder to be forgiving of it. Mm -hmm. You know, you can sort of uh, be a little more tolerant of, of some of the, well, most of the ones from the 50s and 60s are torn down anyway now, but, you know, in a way you can almost be a little bit more tolerant of some of them because we didn't always know better, and those were the years when everybody thought this stuff was all kind of cool and nobody had really focused enough on how the automobile which seemed like a great force of liberation was going to also be a force of strangulation in <laughs> cities and so forth and so you know uh, we were all kind of enamored with this new toy of freeways and expressways and cars and suburbs and all that stuff So, but by the time new comiskey was built we really knew better and again as we've just said Armorfield had already been designed and proposed as an alternative there was a lot of other stuff happening in the world of architecture and planning and design outside of baseball. Camden Yards was being developed in Baltimore. So, you know, something else was cooking, and it was going to turn out to be really important and change everything. So for New Comiskey to happen then was, in fact, uh, it, it even harder to justify in the same way, by the way, that um, just a few years later, losing Tiger Stadium uh, is, in a weird way, harder to justify than losing Ebbets Field um, 40 years earlier. Not because Tiger Stadium is better than Ebbets Field. I don't think it was. But it's because, you know, we didn't know very much about the value of historic buildings in the late 1950s. We really didn't appreciate them. But by 2000, you couldn't say that. People knew better. And so, harder to justify, given... When it, when it happened. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. And John Tastier, who's an architecture writer with a long standing interest in baseball, who's done a lot of writing on a lot of different parks over the years, um, has observed that the front row of the upper deck in the New Comiskey Park is farther from the field than the back row. Of the upper deck in the old one yeah and that itself that almost tells you everything you need to know about what's wrong with with new comiskey it's just not an intimate place it doesn't give you a sense of connection to the field or to what's going on Um, you know and it's I I I was at old comiskey park uh, one of the last games of the last season and uh, uh, it was wonderful and I must say we
3: miss it. Yeah, uh, that's one thing that's kind of surprised me and I think old Comiskey is maybe a little bit elevated in the fans of or in the minds of uh, White Sox fans just because of the flaws in the new stadium and I was surprised yeah. a little bit that you were a little bit uh, indifferent towards old Comiskey, I guess maybe relative to the other parks of the era as being you called it an architectural anticlimax. And uh, I have a few few selling points I want to present to you, and you can either you agree or smack them down or whatever. One is that the uh, exterior archways I think uh, are very distinctive, and you can point you if you look at old newsreel footage inside the stadium and you see those archways, you know where you're at. So it gives you a place. Yes, uh, true, true. So there's that. So uh, the other point uh, I think interior is that when the exploding scoreboard came in. That really uh, was framed well by the surrounding upper decks. Like it's a very, very distinct backdrop that I think is. Uh, uh, they, they've tried to duplicate in the new stadium and haven't done.
1: Right, so I that. would agree with both of those points. And uh, I think while I did not and do not consider uh, Comiskey quite at the level of, you know, the the greatest of the and the most iconic of the ballparks of that period, I think it is good. And I think probably. Um, one of the few things I might want to tweak in the book if we have time one day for a new edition would be to be a little more generous to old Comiskey, actually. Um, I think I probably, you know, in the the few ballparks of the um, the beginning of the golden age, uh, which is to say just before Fenway and Tiger Stadium in 1912, um, I think for some reason I I was particularly enamored by um, both Scheib Park in Philadelphia and um, Forbes Field in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. And I think that, if I recall, what really happened, I think, was I just kind of got distracted by those two and ended up giving old Comiskey slightly less credit than it probably deserved. I think those three should probably be considered a trio of really important ballparks that preceded the the major monuments of the golden age, just a few years later.
3: I'm glad I stood up for it then, because yeah, as you mentioned, the upper deck. That's my last game I went to there was in the upper deck, and I just remember so vividly how close it was compared to the new one. And
1: yeah, it is yeah, messy. exactly. No, no, and that and you know the reality is intimacy is everything in baseball and in ballparks, and uh, that was. One of the big parts of the problems with all of the concrete donuts is that, you know, the circle kind of pushed too many people much farther away than they needed to be uh, by that, you know, abstract shape of a circle, which is at odds with the shape of a diamond or the shape Mm -hmm. of an outfield and so forth. Um, So, uh, you know, you're just – and also the the obsession with not having uh, any columns, so as to block not block views you know it's a you can understand and respect that intention but it comes at a very very high price often because then you know you can't cantilever too far over because structurally that's too difficult so you end up pulling the upper deck back and then the uh, the third deck if there is a third deck back further over that and so everything gets pushed way back and it pushes people away from the field all so that you don't have uh, an extension with columns. Frankly, I'd rather see a couple of limited view seats or you just organize things to leave a little aisle behind the column and nobody sits there, which reduces somewhat the amount of blockage. But anyway.
3: uh, To wrap up here, um, and you've been very generous with your time, when reading the book, uh, I went to a- after I read the book, I went to Oakland's Coliseum, and you know, mm-hmm. obviously that's one that that you panned and rightfully so because it's not a right. it's a facility, not a ballpark. Right. But when right. I went there, yeah, you know, I I went there with kind of a renewed sense of um, you know, what am I looking for? What am I enjoying? What don't I like? Uh, and it reminded me, your book reminded me of Don Norman's Design of Everyday Things. And that after reading it, uh, you start looking at things differently and, and trying to figure out what how it could be better, how it how you feel about it versus just accepting it for what it is. And I'm curious, you know, you know as fans read your book and, and start giving this more thought, when they go into a ballpark, either for the first time or for the next time, is there anything that you notice that you wish more fans or more you know media members or team employees would uh, notice about parks that you think are more important than is maybe given credit?
1: Ah, that's a really interesting question. Actually, Um, I what I what I would always mean so much to me is the trend, nature of the transition from city into ballpark, and how wonderful that can be. How wonderful it feels like, you know. In uh, I hate to mention this on a White Sox podcast, but you know, as you walk through Wrigleyville into wrigley field or into you know around the back bay of boston into fenway and that sort of transition from the neighborhood into the ballpark and the magic of seeing the field and the the drama of seeing that incredible intense green for the first which for me always feels like the first time even if i've seen it a thousand times Mm. and and you know I, i think doing all we can to Make, enhance, and heighten that experience, which for me is the best, one of the best parts of it, besides the game itself, of course.
3: Well, I'd say that's a great note to end on. So, uh, thank I, you. Th- this has been really a highly enjoyable conversation, and ballpark was really an enjoyable book. And, and oh,
1: I, I really you, appreciate it. Thank you so much.
3: And yeah, thank wish you, you success, and uh, we'll link we'll to it and uh, make sure people can find it. So thank you very Wonderful. much,
1: Paul goldberger Great, thank you, Jim.
3: Welcome to the Minor League Report. Consider Luis Robert's first weekend in AAA a success. Robert went 7-for-16 over those four games with two homers, two doubles, and a stolen base. He struck out just twice, and while he didn't draw a walk, he got plunked three times. The rest of Charlotte is comparatively quieter. Even Yermin Mercedes has seen his OPS drop below 1,000. Birmingham's where all the action is, and Gavin Sheets has been more active than most. He's reached base in 30 straight games, and 39 of his last 40. Over that 40-game stretch, he's hit 329 with a 395 OBP and 575 slugging, with the kind of strike zone control he showed in Winston-Salem, 16 walks, 24 strikeouts. He's positioning himself for a look at AAA, where he'll run headlong into the cluster of first basemen, catchers, and right fielders who are jockeying for that spot. Hopefully, we can start calling Luis Basabe active as well. Basabe's season has been defined by hand and leg injuries, but he's back off the injured list and has a month and a half to salvage what's looking like a lost season. In Winston-Salem, Jonathan Stever has usurped Connor Pilkington as the dash pitching prospect most worth watching. He's posted a 2.53 ERA over five starts, and the peripherals are legit. 32 innings, 31 base runners, 36 strikeouts, just eight walks. If there's one knock on him, he's a little bit homer-prone, with 14 of them surrendered over 106 innings, but there appears to be something to his profile. Andrew Vaughn may be in Winston soon because nine games into his Kannapolis career, the Sally League has little to show him. Vaughn slashing 353, 452, 500 with 6 walks to 7 strikeouts over his first 9 games. Nick Magical spent 12 games with the Intimidators before joining the Dash in his first pro season, and it wouldn't surprise me if Vaughn's on the same timeline. When Vaughn goes, the Kannapolis offense is going to be without a central threat as the A ball prospects continue to be oscillating between hot and cold. Bryce Bush is just 3 for 33 with 2 walks over his last 8 games, striking out 11 times. Down in the rookie leagues, Sam Abbott has a 9-game hitting streak going with Great Falls, which feels like an important development. The converted water polo player hit just 139 last year, so being able to make useful contact on a day-to-day basis feels like a step in the right direction, even if the strikeouts are still up there. He's also slugging 565, which is cool, and only Harvin Mendoza has a higher OPS in Great Falls at 955. Man, the Sox have a lot of first basemen, and it might be worth a post. And down in the Dominican Summer League, keep an eye on Ronaldo Guzman. The Dominican lefty is posting some impressive numbers as a 16-year-old. He's racked up 40 strikeouts over his first 28 innings, spanning 7 starts, which I don't recall seeing from a Sox pitching prospect that young. He signed for $75,000, and Baseball America's Ben Battler says he's already hitting 89 miles per hour, and with an easy arm action and athletic delivery that he repeats well to throw strikes with an advanced changeup for his age. So far, so good. That'll do it for the Meyer League report. Now let's answer your questions in P.O. Socks.
2: You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Socks.
0: Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Socks where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter at Sox Machine, posting your questions on our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Machine and helping support the site and show by becoming a friend of the podcast at patreon.com slash Machine. And I'm rejoined with Jim to answer your guys' questions this week. And the first question comes from Mark Johntree, who's one of our Patreon supporters. So Mark, thank you so much for your support. And Mark is asking, Jim, seems to me a retractable roof is going to be a feature, a must have feature for the White Sox next stadium, given the wide ranging weather considerations and a desire to guarantee games will be played from an economic standpoint. Do you agree or disagree?
3: Well, that uh, question comes on the heels of a question he asked to Paul Goldberger. And uh, if you're a Patreon supporter, you can hear that. If you're not, I recommend uh, signing up in order to hear that hot, exclusive content. Uh, but I think with the uh, with the retractable roof, I think it is going to be an important part um, of the ballpark negotiations and attempt to, uh, given some of the considerations when it comes to uh, you know how much extra space a park with a retractable roof needs and uh the budget limitations like who's financing it and and how it's being financed and how much public money is required or if it's required um you know that could play a part and we saw target field i guess the ultimate ballpark that needs a retractable roof not get one um and seems to be doing fine like yeah i think uh teams would like to have it just to have guaranteed dates and fans would like to have it just because it's uh you know a lot easier to plan around and and you don't have a days and weekends blown up because weather comes in so i think that it makes all the sense in the world to have one there just are some pragmatic limitations and i do wonder like say if they somehow got some land in the south loop and, and were tucked into a really you know attractive parcel of land that's surrounded by neighborhoods or at least other you know their their neighborhood like possibilities and has a nice view of the skyline if it didn't have room for a tractable roof would that be a deal breaker And I don't think it would be um, just because, you know, baseball does find ways to, uh, um, you know, draw and draw enough fans even without them in certain markets. And I think if you have a really good downtown location where it's easy for fans and tourists and and, and people coming off work to get there, then I think they can do without it. I would like to, yeah, I guess I would like to see when all things considered just because it does make it easier to plan around and. Uh, You don't have to sit out rain delays or get hammered during rain delays or, uh, you know, have all these uh, extreme weather changes. And as, you know, climate change affects the country and more and more, I think that's going to be kind of a necessity, I think, for baseball to hold on to uh, whatever attendance gains or minimize the losses it has. So probably going to be a thing they really want but i think there could be the case where if they really want to do return to an urban setting it might not be the most possible unless they make some more land for it i really do think that should be a priority though but over over and say like if they if it came to south loop ballpark with no retractable roof versus bridgeport armor square ballpark with retractable roof which one would you go with
0: bridgeport hmm the South Loop is a, is a headache to get to anywhere there, especially by car.
3: Yeah, but if you take the train...
0: Yeah, but again, how many fans are taking the train? I mean, if you live in the city, great.
3: If you live in the suburbs... Uh Metra. The Metra would actually run pretty close. To the South Loop? Yeah, within reason. They're like Metra and a Lyft or an Uber. Okay. okay. Or a cab or whatever.
0: Well... <sighs> We'll see. I mean, land is quickly going up in South Loop. I mean, the other opportunity is if there's land by McCormick Place. I mean, is that what you're talking about when you say
3: South Loop? Yeah, just South Loop, you know, whether it's tucked more in by the, the Kennedy or by, you know, just somewhere in the closer to downtown on the south side. So more of a general description. See, I think your choices are Bridgeport
0: or West Loop by the united center
3: yeah that would have room for the retractable roof out there depending on exactly what they get i hope they don't displace the neighborhood for it oh they will <laughs> yeah okay that's uh, you know that's one of the regrettable things you know talking about the armor field and new Comiscus decisions they could have done far less uh yeah they could have had far less of a negative effect on the neighborhood around it if they went with the armor field plan but they went with the one that need required a neighborhood to be cleared out and that's not Good. I would like to see that avoided. So, I agree. But I
0: think right now, in 10 years, if we are trying to see into the future, I think the White Sox either build a new stadium across the street where they originally were, or they move closer to the United Center, the West Loop, as Chicago tries to do what Detroit has done and some other major urban areas on trying to cut out a part of the city to have their professional sports stadiums next to one another. Uh, instead of being right now, I'm not gonna say all over the place, but yeah, the United Centers in the West Loop, the Bears are in the Museum Campus. Obviously, Wrigley Field is in Wrigleyville, and the White Sox are down in Bridgeport. But we'll see what happens. Again, there's a lot of politics that'll have to be played. But if if given the oppor- you know given the choice, I am get a retractable roof team, and it sounds like you're more concerned about the location being closer to downtown.
3: Yeah, just more an ingrained part of the city, and if they have to go with a smaller footprint to make a really nice stadium work, I'm cool with that. Well, if they continue to raise rent
0: all across the city, who knows? Maybe Bridgeport will become the next Logan Square, and the city will come to the White Sox gym.
3: It's possible. That's I'm not ruling it out just because of you know uh, inter uh, sorry in, intra city uh, migration patterns. It's not out of the question. Right. So. But it's definitely worth having a conversation
0: uh, because this is something that will be discussed again over the next decade, and these things take time. So excellent question. Thank you so much for your question, Mark. And our next question also comes from another Mark. This is Mark Liptak on Twitter. And Mark is asking, given the White Sox have a number of young, Latin, and high school players in the system, why don't they start another Arizona or low minor league team? Give these guys more at-bats, more game action, and more chances to develop. Is it a financial issue for Jerry Reinsdorf?
3: I don't think it is, especially with an AZL team. Uh, if they if they went with an Arizona League team, I think maybe um, part of it is the draft seemed to be a little bit improvised for the White Sox. I don't know if they intended to be as high school heavy as they are. I think this way it shook out. So right now they might be caught a little, little off guard or might, might have to spread some bats around or do more instructional work. With these guys, but I think maybe next year, I wouldn't be surprised if they added the second AZL team uh, in seeing how many other franchises have done it and seeing that they don't isn't, doesn't require any additional land or uh, you know, agreements with cities or anything like that. It should seem like it's eminently feasible. And if they go prep heavy again. Uh, I don't know how you get these guys at bats, So uh, I wouldn't be surprised if next year they do have a second AZL team. And, and this is where I'll use this time to stump for a New York Penn League team, a <laughs> short season A-ball team. Uh, if the White Sox went that route, I would uh, highly appreciate it. Our next question comes from
0: Shaq on Twitter. And Shaq is asking, Jim, should the White Sox package Aaron Bummer in a deal with Alex Colabay to swing the return? If so what would a potential equitable return be in your opinion?
3: I'm not really a fan of packaging players that have distinct trade values together. Um, it's not not a, a terrible idea. Just, it seems like it muddles it and doesn't really enhance anything. Like I'm thinking of the Tommy Canley deal where David Robertson and Todd Frazier were packaged in all three could have been traded independently. I think Canely Robertson could have been traded independently. Maybe Frazier might've had a harder time finding takers. But, you know, it ended up, you know, looking maybe immediately looked like a Canely for Blake Rutherford deal and Robertson for a bunch of extra pieces and it took about a year, year and a half for that to be the case where it was only Canely for Rutherford standing. And and so it seems like it's, uh, you know, maybe they thought they're getting something that like Ian Clarkin and Tito Polo and, and Polo didn't stay healthy and Clarkin had more health issues, but um, it didn't seem to enhance much and maybe would have been better off dividing the two and i think with column he's probably close to david robertson when it comes to trade value he's you know got the same amount of team control left robertson was more expensive but he had better peripherals and uh richer strikeout history so i think you know the the value is close to the same and i think bummer is you know if you're looking to trade him and i don't know if the white Sox should be looking to trade him considering uh that he is under team control for so long and they're going to have to have a bullpen at some point um if they do dangle him, kind of uh, take him around the league, um, it, it seems like uh, they would have enough independent takers to where they would be able to uh, bounce off who wants Bummer the most, rather than uh, you know t- needing to package him with Colomay and another team might not be as impressed with Colomay and might not really feel like he adds all that much. So I think Bummer can be moved around by himself and 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 discussed an entirely separate price from column a and i think it's probably the most effective way to do it and thank you to everyone who submitted questions this week for po socks great
0: questions as always guys and if you would like to submit a question or topic for us to tackle in a future episode of the socks machine podcast again follow us on twitter we're at socks machine like our facebook page at facebook.com slash socks machine and help support the site and show by going to patreon.com slash Machine to sign up to become a friend of the podcast and the website where you guys get additional content every single week. You get an opportunity to ask questions to our guests, uh, like for this episode of Paul Goldberger. Uh, you also get an opportunity to ask additional P.O. Sox questions that Jim and I always answer. Uh, so if you like our work and you want more, go to patreon.com slash Machine to sign up. Today. And that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. I'd like to thank our guest Paul Goldberger for joining the show. Awesome conversation about ballparks in America. And if you just discovered the Sox Machine Podcast, you can subscribe in a number of ways. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Audioboom.com slash Socks Machine. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening.
2: Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns.